Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. When despair for the world grows in me And I wake in the night at the least sound In fear of what my life and my children's lives may be I go and lie down where the wood drake rests In his beauty on the water And the great heron feeds I come into the peace of wild things Who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. That's Wendell Berry reading his poem, The Peace of Wild Things, for the On Being Project. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, and this is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm broadcasting today from my home. How are you taking solace these days? I find peace when I'm in nature. Lately, every day after dinner, when it's not cloudy, I've been making sure I'm outside during the golden hour, right before sunset. Now that spring is here, are you taking up a new hobby, like growing some vegetables from seed? Or are you a seasoned gardener already, eagerly anticipating the bulbs and other plants popping up in your yard? Today, where we live, we focus on the importance of being outside, and gardening is one of the best ways to do it. We also want to hear your gardening questions today. Here's the number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, who better to answer all of your gardening questions than Charlie Nardozzi, host of the Connecticut Garden Journal on Connecticut Public Radio. He's a horticulturist. He's been on the show several times. Our listeners love to hear from him. Charlie, welcome back to the show. It's nice to be here, Lucy. I wanted to first ask how you're doing up in Vermont. Well, we're fortunate to live out in the country, uh, so we have plenty of room to take walks with our dogs at a social distance, so we're able to get out and get around. Um, And other than not doing the same kind of work that I normally do this time of year, uh, traveling and speaking and all of that, um, things haven't changed too much. Um, I do kind of chuckle at myself because I get excited about going to the grocery store because we rarely go out very much. Uh, So it's kind of a different time. It definitely is. Uh, Are you finding that more people are attracted to gardening right now? Has this happened in other crisis years? Yes, this is actually uh, very traditional. You've probably seen news and heard news stories about um, seed sales skyrocketing on online sales for many seed companies and plant sales. uh, And further south and west, where they're already right in the middle of the gardening season, uh, plants, uh, edible plants are flying off the shelves at garden centers. Um, So this is something that really happens whenever there's an an economic downturn or if there's a natural disaster or any kind of calamity uh, where people are feeling a little uncertain, a little unsure about what's going on and feel like they need to take some control of their lives. Growing a vegetable garden is one of the things we always go back to. It goes back to the Victory Garden days and, and the Second World War. And during different kinds of economic downturns, we've seen this happen. And it appears to be what's happening now. I think there'll be a lot more new vegetable gardeners out there this summer. 
Tell me more about the, the Victory Gardens. I know you've done a, a webinar that we're going to share with our uh, listeners uh, later, but tell us more about the Victory Gardens. Yeah, the Victory Gardens, uh, actually, it happened twice in the 19th century. It was the Liberty Gardens in World War I. And it's when the government encouraged people to grow a lot more of their own vegetables in backyards and in community spaces to support the war effort. And it really blossomed in the Second World War, so much so that in 1943, I believe, about 40% of the produce consumed in the country was grown in these backyard gardens, community gardens, church gardens, you know, places where people would gather together and grow vegetables. So it is something that is kind of part of our tradition where we really rely on the vegetable gardens and go back to those, especially when there's nervousness about our food supply and nervousness about having enough money to put food on the table. Why not grow it yourself? It has lots of advantages of having healthy food, safe food, and nutritious food, as well as saving money. Uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, people are thinking about gardening, maybe growing their own vegetables because they want to feel like they have control over something. Uh, I made the mistake, Charlie, of, of being late this year ordering my vegetable seeds. And so when I went to the traditional places I go online, a lot of the seed packets were sold out. So in terms of people maybe trying to go online now uh, to buy seeds, is it is it too late? Uh, where are other places that they can get them? Well, you certainly can go online. You know, it's definitely true, Lucy, that a lot of varieties are sold out. Um, the companies that I traditionally go to have been like that as well. And I know some companies um, even are uh, kind of delaying fulfilling orders for home gardeners because they have a lot of commercial customers are trying to service as well. Um, but I think going out there and checking your favorite seed companies and seeing what's there and maybe being a little flexible about the actual variety of tomato you're growing or summer squash you're growing or, or bean, um, that might help. Um, and also as things hopefully start opening up a little bit more, you know, we're not clear exactly when that's going to happen where people can actually go uh, shopping in garden centers. But I know that you can do a lot of curbside pickup. You can call local garden centers and see what they have on their seed racks and actually get some of that, kick some of those seeds uh, and, and pick them up curbside. Um, that way everyone stays safe and you might be able to get some of the varieties you really want. Have you started uh, seedlings in your uh, trays at home? We want to hear from you with Charlie Nardozzi, again, host of the Connecticut Garden Journal on Connecticut Public Radio. Here's the number, uh, whether you're trying to grow vegetables or there's something in your yard that you uh, need help with, uh, you have a general gardening question, 888-720-WMPR. That's 888-720-9677. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, so, Charlie, this time of year, uh, I'm getting a lot of uh, cold uh, nights uh, where I live. I'm just wondering what are some of the, the plants that people should be starting now? Uh, yeah, so we're, we're talking about vegetables, so we'll kind of, kind of start there. Um, this is perfectly a good time, even with the cold nights that we've been getting, uh, to plant things like peas, for example. Uh, peas, uh, you know, if you follow the phenology, and for those who are not familiar with phenology, that's when you do certain garden activities based on what's happening in nature around you. And so one of the, the clues is when daffodils start blooming, then it's time to plant peas. Uh, so uh, as the daffodils are blooming now, you can go out there, uh, plant your peas in raised beds, make sure the soil is well drained you know if we get a lot of rain as it's, it's projected you know today and sunday as well um you don't want them to rot in the soil uh, but anything any of those cool crops are actually okay to start putting out so peas um, you can sow spinach and lettuce radishes um, you can put in leeks and, and pretty soon um, onions as well. All those crops can take a light frost um, and do okay and they'll actually enjoy the cooler temperatures. 
We got a post from Ines on Facebook that says uh, they're going strong already at her house. Lettuce under makeshift hothouses, carrots, spinach, onions, broccoli, radishes, and more. Kale and garlic from last year. Her peas are already starting to poke out. Uh, so she's definitely got a good handle on this. But again, for people who may not have tried to grow vegetables for the, and this is a first time, uh, what do they need to start? Yeah, so the best way to start if you're just new to vegetable gardening um, is to probably do, if you have the room in your yard, a little raised bed. Uh, raised beds are great because they elevate the soil, so they mark out the garden uh, in your yard really clearly, and you can put in some really good uh, topsoil and compost, usually a 50-50 mix when you're doing a raised bed. Um, you can make the raised beds a nice size, so maybe um, you don't want to make them any wider than three or four feet, but they could be as long as you like, maybe a six foot, a three by six kind of a raised bed is a nice size, or four by six. Um, and because it's marked out that way and it's really clear and they're raised up, they'll warm up faster and then drain water better. So that you'll have more likelihood of success when you're putting in your pea seeds or your lettuce seed. Things won't rot as well. Uh, and because you're putting in really healthy soil, um, you can put things a little bit closer in those raised beds and be more productive. So I think the first step is to find a nice sunny spot in your yard, build that raised bed. You can make them out of wood. Cedar wood is nice or spruce or hemlock is nice. Stay away from the pressure treated lumbers. Um, or you can use um, stones, pavers. Um, some people use metal beds. They use old watering troughs that you use for horses or cows um, as a, a raised bed. Um, lots of different materials. But the idea is to make sure that um, they're high enough. You want to make them up at least eight to 10 inches tall, if not even higher, if you have really poor soil underneath it. Um, and as I said, not too wide. So you can you don't have to step in the bed at any point in time when you're working it. You can join our conversation again here on Where We Live as we focus on gardening this hour, 888-720-WMPR. That's 888-720-9677. Uh, Barbara's calling from Stanford. Barbara, what's your question for Charlie? I have a geranium that I've had for several years. It's become very leggy, and I want to know if this is something I can cut and repot or, you know, how to, to propagate it so that I get more flowers and less of the stem. So, Barbara, it sounds like you're growing it indoors right now. Oh, she's actually on hold. Let me oh, she's gone. Okay. I'm, I'm oh, Barbara, kind of... Barbara, go ahead. Are, are you growing them I... indoors right now? Yes, I am. Okay. And, and you grow them indoors year-round or you bring them outside? No, it's been indoors for several years. Okay. Um, I, I think, Barbara, what's happening is that because it's indoors so much, it's just not getting enough light, so it's stretching. And when it stretches like that, you're going to get kind of leggy growth on a geranium, and you probably won't get that much flowering on it um, unless you're in a real sunny window. Uh, so my suggestion would be to, yes, go ahead and cut it back this time of year. It's fine to do that, and geraniums can take a, a real strong cutting back and be okay. Um, you can reduce the size of the plant by a half if you want, for example. Um, and you can take those cuttings, and you can put them in, either in water or in a moistened potting soil, maybe even with a little rooting hormone powder at the end of them, especially the, the thinner diameter cuttings, and they will root, and you'll actually get new plants from them. But the other thing I'd suggest is that if you have any place where it gets uh, – at least a half day of sun or so outside. It could be a deck, a patio, balcony, any spot where you can put them. Once it gets warmer, more towards Mother's Day and Memorial Day, and move them outside and keep them well watered, give them some fertilizer during the summer, and you'll see that the plant will flower better, bush out really nicely. And then when you move it back in in the fall, it'll be a healthier plant that'll uh, look better throughout the winter. 
Well, thank you uh, for calling in. You can too, 888-720-WNPR. That's 888-720-9677. Before I take another call, uh, someone called in, uh, Charlie, to say if people are having trouble finding seeds, uh, that you can plant stumps of onion or celery and they'll grow. Is that true? Well, yes, they will. You could do what we call grocery store gardening. So you can get everything from carrots to uh, celery to um, lettuces, you know, heads of lettuces, um, put them in the soil, and they actually start growing. Now, they're not going to be as productive as if you started the, the plant yourself or grew it from seed or a transplant, but it will grow. <laughs> so you will get some things out of it. It's a fun project to do with kids. I know a lot of people are at home with their kids right now. Um, it's a fun project to do with them because it's very rewarding to kind of see it in a sunny window in a pot, and then after a week or so, it's starting to grow. And then, of course, if it's something like lettuce, you can start eating it pretty easily. Uh, so yeah, it's a fun thing to do indoors and maybe even outdoors. Uh, Matt's calling in. Matt, what's your question? Yeah, hi. Good morning. My question is, every year I grow sunflower plants, and the plants will grow about three inches, get a few leaves, and then some insects, or some, I believe, are attacking them. Is there any way to manage that? Uh, well, I think, Matt, the first thing is to figure out if it's an insect or if it's an animal. You know, it could be rabbits, it could be deer. Um, there's a lot of creatures that love sunflowers uh, besides us. So um, if it looks like it's something that just has holes in the leaves, then it's more likely to be an insect. If it looks like the plant just kind of either disappears overnight or is just chopped off at, at the top, then it could very well be an animal. So um, if it is an animal, of course, if you can cover those plants with something, with a floating row cover, um, chicken wire, something that's going to protect them, that's going to be helpful. If it looks like it's more insect related, you can uh, do uh, some safe things that were, are good for general insects. And one is uh, like a kale and clay is what it's called. It's a type of powdery clay dust that you can put on the plant. Um, and that creates an environment that insects don't really like. So they tend to avoid that plant. You can do the same thing with another product called diatomaceous earth. It's DE or diatomaceous earth. Um, and that is something you can get at a garden center or home center. Um, and again, you sprinkle it on the plant. It's very dusty. So I would try those two things and, and see if that helps. And once that Sunflower gets big enough, it shouldn't have many problems with insects, but you still have to watch out, though, if there are deer around because they love sunflowers. Uh, we heard from Catherine on Facebook. Uh, she writes, I have been running the community gardens in Torrington this season. Our plots are sold out this year. First time in a long time. Charlie, talk a little bit about community gardens. Uh, again, if people don't have enough space or maybe a sunny spot where they live, this is a, a good way to also garden. But I'm wondering if people might be apprehensive, too, because of the social distancing. Yes. Uh, so community gardens, is, as you're describing, Lucy, is a, a community space that, depending upon how it's run, uh, usually it's run as the English would call an allotment style, meaning you come in, you pay your money to rent a certain size garden, 20 by 30, whatever size that they're doing at that uh, location, um, and then you can just garden there. And it's a great way to be able to grow a lot of food um, if you don't have the space uh, to garden around your home or your apartment, wherever you are, or if where you uh, live is a, a real shady spot or a spot that's not conducive to vegetable gardening. Getting a community garden plot is great. Um, of course, during this uh, 
COVID-19 virus uh, pandemic, a lot of people are concerned about being together in groups. And I know that a number of community gardens are implementing um, rules at the gardens where they're asking people to stay a safe distance apart, wear masks, do all those types of things. The nice thing about community gardens is they tend to be kind of big. Uh, they're spacious, they're outdoors. So there probably isn't a real strong need to actually have to interact with people too much um, at a close distance. It's not like going into a grocery store, for example. Um, so I think you can, if you're very conscious about it and the community garden organizers are really good about uh, obviously stating all the rules of that community garden to be able to garden safely out there in that garden, grow a lot of produce so you can have it not just for the summer, but get things you can have and keep for the fall and winter as well. Uh, Barbara's calling from Wallingford. Barbara, what's your question for Charlie Narduzzi? Well, um, on the on the point of the community garden, I give a thumbs up. I've been a community community gardener for years, and uh, that's part of my question. I we had a plot. We have a plot that we've we and we love it. And we love the community. We love the the diversity of the people out there and the kinds of things they grow. But my my major question is: we've taken on a second plot, which abuts our first plot because the the previous. Uh, gardeners were basically non-existent, so it's it's rife with all kinds of invasives, and there's but and you know we have the mugwort, we've got now the Canada thistle, which is a killer, um, and we've got the 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 dock. But my major question is: one part of the garden is quite wet, especially after all this rain, and I was wondering if you could suggest something that would sustain itself when um, it gets pretty wet and muddy in that area of the garden? Uh, sure, yeah. No, most plants really don't like, most vegetables really don't like a real wet soil, like a, a, a soil that has puddles on it and holds water. Um, so my suggestion was to, would be to raise that soil up. You know, if you can create a raised bed in there, it doesn't have to be a structured raised bed like I was speaking earlier, you know, with wood or stone around it. It could just be somewhere where you raise up the soil and raise it up, you know, be significant about it, especially if it's an area that stays wet into the summer, you know, raise it up a foot or so tall. By doing that, the water might be pooling around it, but where you're growing your plants, it's going to be drained so that it'll, and the plants will grow well. That being said, uh, also you can plant things that will will tolerate uh, wetter soils or kind of like wetter soils um, in the sense of some of the brassicas, for example, the broccoli plants, cauliflower, uh, Brussels sprouts, plants of that nature. They have strong root systems. They like a moist soil, even tomatoes. You know, if they have a well-drained soil, um, any plant that gets a good size to them, you know, they grow those giant pumpkins you see at the fairs every fall. One of the things they have to do to get those giant pumpkins is water them heavily. So that gives you an idea that winter squash would be another kind of crop that would do pretty well in a wetter soil. But I also have to put the caveat that it has to be a raised bed so that there's enough drainage so it doesn't stay wet right around the roots and the plant rots. Uh, Charlie, speaking of squash, Jason on Twitter writes, Last summer, all my vegetables and flowers flourished. With the exception of my crookneck squash, it grew to proportions worthy of winning a blue ribbon. But they all turned pitch white before I could harvest them. They became complete mush to the touch. He wants to know why. Huh, so I'm assuming he's talking about the fruit are turned white and, and mushy. Um, that is an unusual characteristic. I, I don't think I've ever seen that before. My guess is it's probably some kind of fungal disease that got in there. Um, I'm not sure why they turned white and not kept that nice yellow color to them. Um, but the mushiness is probably indicative of a, a fungal disease. If it was mushy and smelled, then it could be a bacterial disease. So there, there is some kind of disease in there. Um, I know you can 
sometimes contact the master gardeners at, at the University of Connecticut, and they have access to plant diagnostic labs, and there's ways to find out exactly what disease it might be. My suggestion for this year would be to rotate crops. So don't plant your squash in the same place you planted it last year. Put it in a different spot of the garden if you can, or a different raised bed, depending upon how you're growing it. And that will um, enable that squash to grow in a place where it doesn't have those disease spores around it. Um, and you might want to try a different variety too. I know we talked about the limits, the limitations of not having a lot of varieties available because they've sold out. But if you can check around and see if there's a different variety of summer squash that looks attractive, maybe a more uh, modern variety with better disease resistant, that might help too. Uh, Chris on Facebook, I uh, wanted to remind everyone that it's important to save seeds and that seeds sold in packets are viable for several years. You don't have to buy them every year. That's an important point, Charlie. So as people are, are growing things this year, uh, what's a good way to save seeds? Yeah, that's a great point, Chris, uh, because often you'll buy a seed packet and say you buy a tomato seed packet and you start a half dozen tomatoes indoors, um, you may have 20 or 30 seeds in there. So a lot of seeds, or I should say most seeds, will last a number of years um, if you store them in a cool place and a dark place. So we put ours, uh, for example, in our basement, in a nice dry spot in our basement. Um, and most vegetables will last three or four years or so. Once you start getting beyond that, though, a, a good thing to do uh, before you start trying to use those seeds is to do what we call a germination test. Is take maybe 10 of those seeds, assuming you have a lot of them left, take about 10 of those seeds, put them in a paper towel, a moistened paper towel, and then put that into a clear plastic bag and put it in a warm spot out of direct sun. And after a week, you go back in, you open it up and see how many germinated. If more than uh, seven of them germinated, if eight or nine or 10 of them germinated, then that seed is fine. If less than that germinated, then you probably want to get some new seed. Um, so that's a way to be able to store your seed, save your seed year after year. There are a few vegetables like onions, for example, um, and parsnips that don't save very well, regardless of how you do it. So that's something where you may have to get the seed new every year or two. But for most everything else, you can save them and use that same packet for a number of years. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest for the hour, Charlie Nardozzi. He's a horticulturist, also host of the Connecticut Garden Journal on Connecticut Public Radio. What are you planting in your garden? What gardening questions do you have? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Are you in the garden more because of social distancing? Or have you thought about starting a garden because you're home more often? What questions do you have? Horticulturist Charlie Nardozzi is here to answer them. He's host of the Connecticut Garden Journal. Here's the number to call in, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Uh, Charlie, I, I often think about gardening as a great way to get the whole family involved. My children have been in the yard since they were very little, and it gives them appreciation of where our food comes from. Uh, yes, gardening is always a great thing. And one of the groups I've, I've worked with for many years is called kidsgardening.org. Kidsgardening.org, a great resource. If you have kids or grandkids around and you want to do some gardening with them, they have lots of different information on their website, uh, which will get you going. And one of the best things or the smartest things to do with your kids, as you probably know, Lucy, is to match the activity with the interest and ability level. 
So don't expect really young kids to be uh, exactly spacing plants perfectly or not tromping around in the garden. You'll do activities that will be appropriate for them. So for very young kids, it might just be digging in the soil a little bit. Um, and maybe they're only out there for 10 minutes while you're going to spend another hour out there doing other things. Just the whole idea is to get them interested in the garden, get them coming back time and time again so that as they get older and older, they'll be more interested in taking on responsibilities, maybe planting their own uh, cherry tomato plant or bean plant or something that's going to be very rewarding for them. And it creates a lifelong habit. You know, my daughter has been a vegetarian her whole life, and I like to think about it uh, in terms of that when she was growing up, we had a big vegetable garden. She was always out there, not so much planting, but eating a lot. So that's a good thing. I was thinking back to you said, uh, make sure you be a pair of the activity with their age. Uh, my both my children every year, they plant the peas around uh, St. Patty's Day. And we have some chives that come up every year. And they're always running in there, Charlie, to eat the chives whenever we go outside. And so it's just funny to see how they've uh, grown um, to be excited when things are starting uh, to grow. Uh, but I wanted to shift now, Charlie, when we think about again, gardening, but when people have space around their homes, or even a community garden plot, they're lucky to have that space. But what if for people who are in their apartments and they're thinking about, I'd love to grow up some plants, maybe even some vegetables. How do I do it in a small space? Yeah, so if you're in an apartment or a townhouse or a condo uh, where you don't have much space, maybe you have a very small space outside where you, if you're lucky, you can put a little raised bed in it. In, But uh, more than likely, you're probably going to have to juice, just do some container gardening. And then the good thing about that is that there's been a revolution in container gardening, uh, so much so that you have containers now that are lightweight, durable, self-watering, so you don't have to worry about watering them all the time. You know, they can go for a number of days. Um, and there's lots of variety that you can get for containers. So it's not just a pot on the ground anymore. You can get containers that hang on your railing or are like little saddles that will go over a deck um, top board, a, a four inch or six inch wide board along your deck railing and just kind of sit there. Um, you have, of course, hanging baskets and window boxes and vertical gardens that have trellises attached to them. So there's lots of different ways to maximize the space you have. Uh, the first thing, of course, you want to do is uh, do a little estimation about how much sun you have in that location. Uh, the one thing about an apartment garden or a balcony garden is that it may have no sun at all and then all of a sudden, bam, you get bright sun as the sun kind of comes around during the day. So determine how much sun you get. If you get at least six to eight hours of sun a day and you want to grow some um, edibles, some fruit and vegetables, um, you can do that and they will grow well in those containers and you, you'll get a nice harvest. If you have less than that, if you have maybe only three to four hours of direct sun a day, you can still grow vegetables, but you're probably going to be uh, focusing on leafy green vegetables, lettuce, spinach, kale, Swiss chard, things like that. Um, and some of the root crops like radishes and beets and carrots, uh, they'll do okay with the lower light levels. Um, so figuring out how much light you have is one of the first things you can do. Getting some containers, the bigger the container that you can handle, the better, because you can plant more things in there and a variety of things and it won't dry out as much. And then, of course, get some potting soil, especially potting soil with compost um, and start growing, start playing around with different combinations and see what works for you. I want to give a shout out to Collins Compost in Enfield, Connecticut. This is a, a dairy farm and their compost is pretty great. I often pick it up uh, each year at the Conservation District uh, plant sales. Uh, you can join uh, our conversation with Charlie Nardozzi, host of the Connecticut Garden Journal on Connecticut Public Radio, the number 888-720-WNPR. Ellen's calling from Manchester. Ellen, go ahead. 
Hi, thank you for taking my call. I have a two-bay garage size flat roof that is black rubber. It gets so hot. I'm trying to grow plants up there because deer love my garden on the, on the ground. So I wonder what edible plants can tolerate that kind of hot root system that happens on that black roof. Uh, yeah, so Ellen, um, assuming that you have a, a good um, engineering underneath that roof, meaning that if you put a raised bed or something uh, bigger up there, it's going to be supported and be okay, uh, kind of assume that all along. Um, I would go with something that would be um, a little bit higher as far as a raised bed or a big container goes, so it kind of gets it off the ground a little bit. And then think of things that like the heat. So think of plants that, you, that we can grow or maybe marginally grow that would probably do well. So uh, sweet potatoes, for example, melons and watermelons, uh, okra. You could even try peanuts up on your uh, top of of your garage uh, because they like the heat and they like well-drained soil um, and they can take those kind of conditions. So I would say try some of those really heat-loving crops up there in a, either a tall container that's off the ground a little bit so you have a nice soil mass or even a small raised bed. Um, and if it seems like even that is getting too hot for them, you can protect them with a little shade cloth. You can get these material that um, is kind of a black mesh that would go over the plants or over the container or bed, and that will block some of the sun so it doesn't get as hot right around the, where the plants are. Janet's calling from Greenwich. Janet, what's your question? Hi, thank you for taking my call. I've started cucumbers and tomatoes and zucchini in peat pots, and I noticed that the Jiffy thing said take them out of the container the minute they turned green. And I, I did that, um, but they're getting very leggy, and I'm wondering if I've watered them too much or what I can do if this is an experiment gone, gone south. Okay. Well, hopefully it hasn't gone south quite yet, especially with tomatoes. They're, they're pretty forgiving plants, even though they don't look so great. When you finally put them in the ground, they'll, they'll take off. Uh, so the thing with peat pots uh, is that uh, the whole idea behind them is that you're going to grow the plant in that peat pot um, up, up until you want to put it actually in the soil. So you really shouldn't have to be transplanting them into another pot. Uh, you really should keep them in that pot, keep them well watered, maybe give them a little fertilizer if they're looking kind of a pale green color or, or even a yellowish color. Uh, you can use any kind of a liquid fertilizer that would kind of green them up a little bit. And then um, for some of these, the tomatoes, of course, it's a little too early yet. You want to wait down in Greenwich, I would say another couple weeks at least um, before you pop them in the ground. But when you do pop them in the ground with those peat pots, uh, make sure you break up the pot a little bit. Because one thing that happens with them sometimes is that they're, they're such tough pots that they don't break down fast enough and the roots don't have a chance to get into the native soil. So as you're putting it into the ground, break it up with your hand, the bottom of the pot especially, sink it down and, and sink it down so that the pot is not sticking up out of the ground so it doesn't wick moisture away from the root system. You know, put some soil around it, maybe even put some mulch around it. And for especially for the tomatoes, they should just take off at that point, especially with the warmer weather, um, and they should be okay. So don't give up on them quite yet. Just kind of stick with it a little bit longer. You're hearing Charlie Nardozzi, host of the Connecticut Garden Journal on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, this gardening uh, hour has been a, a nice break uh, from a lot of the news uh, that all of us uh, have been uh, paying attention to over the last month. You can join our conversation. If you have a gardening question, 888-720-WMPR. That's 888-720-9677. Before I take some more ca calls, Charlie, they're, they're lined up uh, waiting to ask you a question. Sierra on Facebook uh, 
writes, I garden, but gardening is expensive. It's taken me years of practice and experimentation and preparation to get to the point where my garden has semi-worthy yields. At every turn, I'm fighting insects. I no longer grow squash, cucumber, and melons, and animals and disease. I think it's the rare gardener who has worked up to real yields. Charlie, let's talk a little bit about that because it can be frustrating because of all the critters out there. Um, as you spend time in the garden, you're hoping to to see success, but if it doesn't happen, I mean, how do you handle failure? Well, I, I look at gardening as one of those uh, activities where uh, you never really master it. You're always learning and it's always things that go wrong. And especially with something outdoors, with, which is um, out with the weather and animals and insects and all the different things that are out there. There's so many variables that you can't control. Um, so you, you do the best you can with it and you learn from it. And hopefully as time goes on, as she was saying, you know, you really kind of learn over time what works, what doesn't work, what plants are going to work in my yard, which ones are going to be more of a struggle. And you kind of keep adapting uh, to it. And it's not really ever a finished story. It's one that's continually being written every year in your yard. Uh, so in her case, where she's having a lot of pressure from animals um, and from insects and diseases, um, I go back to the raised beds as a, as a nice idea for that. You can cover those raised beds with this floating row cover or a mesh cover. Um, if you're really into this and if you have the space for it, you see a lot of commercial growers using hoop houses where they actually create this uh, structure, kind of a, a semi-dome structure, and put plastic on it. Um, and you can create a small one where you would just pull the plastic off and then work the garden and then put it back on again, or a big enough one where you can walk into it. Um, it sounds like a big project, and it's not something for a beginning gardener, but if you are an experienced gardener who's been struggling along for a while, you might want to try something that's going to really protect them. Uh, if you have some kind of cover over the plants, you're going to get less insect activity, less deer and, and animal pressure on them, less disease problems. Uh, it really creates a much easier gardening environment. So think about covers that might go over beds, over containers, or even a big enough cover that you can be almost like a small portable greenhouse uh, where you can be growing these things. Good tips. Uh, David's calling from West Hartford. David, are you there? I am still here, yes, listening with uh, great interest, uh, all sorts of uh, good advice. Um, Charlie, I've been doing vegetable gardening for 30 years at our house in various places. I started with my kids 30 years ago, and uh, I basically do it myself now, although the neighbor kids come, and, uh, come in once in a while. But I have a 10 by 20 raised bed garden that I think is just a little bit old, and I was out the other day, uh, digging weeds out and clearing it out and thinking about how to refresh it, either with some new soil. Um, last uh, summer, my tomatoes didn't do very well. I grow mostly tomatoes and uh, lettuce before the tomatoes and some basil, Italian parsley, occasionally zucchini, but they haven't been doing as well either. And uh, But I haven't put anything else in yet, and I'm just looking for some general advice on how to, how to refresh uh, uh, that kind of a garden. Uh, sure, David. Yeah. So having a, a garden that you've been gardening in pretty intensively for a number of years, you really do need to replenish the soil and it really should be an annual event. So in the spring, as Lucy was saying, um, going to a, a local farm or a place where you can get some compost um, that's a good quality compost, one that uh, is done professionally, uh, that's probably the best thing to do. So if you have that soil in that 10 by 20 um, 
plot area, um, you could leave the soil that's in there if you don't have a lot of insect and disease pressure, meaning that your you know, tomatoes aren't just like falling apart by the middle of the summer from disease, or your um, squashes and cucumbers aren't just getting inundated by insects. If that's not happening, it's just the plants are not very vigorous. I think just adding a layer of compost in there would probably be fine. And you could put down a nice three to four inch thick layer of compost. It might be a little bit uh, uh, a little more than you were thinking of adding at this point for especially for such a big area. So you could do it in stages too. You don't have to do it all at once. Uh, but the idea is that you're refreshing that soil and then try to get into the habit of doing it as a yearly event. And it doesn't have to always be compost. Um, there's a book that I've, I've just finished writing that's going to come out in the fall called No Dig Gardening. And in No Dig Gardening, what you're adding is not necessarily just compost, but other organic materials um, like um, straw, for example, or uh, grass clippings that have not been treated with herbicides or even food scraps and things of that nature, you're working those into the soil on a continual basis to continue having the microbes in there break it down so that it releases nutrients for your plants. And if you get in the habit of just mulching with those kinds of materials um, over time, you'll see that the, the whole soil environment will become more alive. Uh, there'll be less need to even turn it under anymore, but it, then you can just kind of uh, pick your places and just plant things either as transplants or as seeds uh, in the garden as it is. Uh, Charlie, when's that, that, that book, No Dig, coming out? We'll have to have you back. Uh, yes. Well, I think it'll be late falls from what I understand. You know, it's always a process. I'm done writing it, but now they're doing all their other magic with it behind the scenes. <laughs> well, it sounds great. Uh, one more call before we head to break. Kara uh, Akara from Tallinn. Go ahead. Kara, are you there? Oh, it doesn't look like uh, Carrie can hear me. So uh, let me talk. Let's talk to another Charlie in Hamden. Charlie, go ahead. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having the program. Um, uh, I'm a teacher at Lila Day in New Haven, and the sort of challenges of doing online learning with four-year-olds, so the gardening projects and outdoor projects are wonderful. And uh, I was just, Charlie uh, Nardozzi, what's the, I'm really intrigued by the whole bring nature home, the Douglas uh, Palamy stuff of digging up lawns and planting grasses and native wildflowers. Do you have some good um, native grasses and wildflowers to just sort of, you know, replace the, you know, my little lawn in front of my house. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great point. You know, for those who are not familiar with Doug Tallamy and in Bringing Nature Home and, and now his other uh, books after that, uh, Doug is, is a uh, entomologist down in Maryland, I believe, Maryland or Delaware. I think it's actually Delaware. Um, and uh, he is a big advocate, as Charlie was saying, of uh, removing some of our lawns and trying to put in more natural plantings in those areas. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to rip out your whole front yard and have just like a wild meadow out there. It might be nice, but um, you may not want to go to that extreme. His point is that if everybody did a little something, just did a little strip, a little area that is kind of left natural, left wild, um, left with wildflowers such as the wild asters and goldenrods and black-eyed Susans um, and echinacea and plants of that nature um, that are familiar to pollinating insects, that are familiar to the, the birds, um, these are going to be great resources. And if everybody does that, 
um, then you're going to create a whole network of these little pollinator gardens or natural garden areas. And in fact, we've done that in Connecticut, down um, in the Greenwich area and Wilton area, and even partnering with uh, communities in New York State with the pollinate. It's called pollinator pathways, and you can look that up mm -hmm. online. Uh, and these pollinator pathways are where communities have come together and say, let's create these pollinator or native gardens in community spaces and encourage people to do them in their backyards. And that way, what we're doing is creating a link in a, in a chain of all these pollinator gardens across a bigger geographic area. This is going to be helpful for the migrating butterflies and, and the native insects that are there and the birds that are coming in, creating a bigger habitat. And it's gotten to the point where we can't just rely on parks and natural preserved areas. It's got to be more than that. It's got to be us as individuals taking it on in our own yards or getting together as a community to create these gardens that will help be habitats for the natural world. You're hearing Charlie Nardozzi on Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up after the break, we're going to squeeze in a couple more calls, and we really appreciate you listening in uh, today, today especially. Uh, we've been taking a break from COVID-19 news today. It's something we've talked about a lot over the last month. We're going to continue looking at its impact on our state in the weeks ahead. And today was also supposed to be the last day of our annual spring membership drive, but Connecticut Public Radio canceled the two-week fun drive to bring you news uninterrupted. You can still donate at WMPR.org. Thanks so much to the listeners who've already contributed. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Dalpathanchel. Uh, joining us on Zoom today, Charlie Nardozzi, host of the Connecticut Garden Journal. And you can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Richard's calling from Wallingford. Richard, quickly, what's your question? Uh, it's about petunias. Um, I've obtained these from my local garden center the last couple of years. I put them in pots and they do really well for several weeks and then literally overnight, the blossoms are gone, and I'm told there's some sort of insect or something attacking the plant. I don't know if there's a way to address that. Uh, sure. So if the blossom just automatically dis disappear, it, it sounds like it might be some, more of an animal-related thing than an insect. You know, insects usually come in, start uh, doing some damage on the flower or on the plant itself, and then eventually may, may kill it or kill the flower. Um, but regardless of what it is, uh, depending upon where you're growing them, uh, you might want to uh, consider putting some uh, covering over them when they're young so they get nice and big and beefy. Um, if it seems like you're, you're leaning more towards an animal there, there's lots of different repellents that you can use. One of my favorites is one called Plant Skid, S-K-Y-D-D. -D. It's a blood meal based uh, repellent. It works really well for a variety of different animals. Um, just if you have dogs, though, they seem to like it really a lot. <laughs> too. So you have to be careful with that. Um, uh, so you can use a repellent uh, uh, for those. Uh, but if you are sure that it is an insect on there, then I course, identifying what that insect is is important before you even try to do any kind of sprays, um, any kind of ways of, of controlling that, um, because depending on the insect and the life cycle, um, that would be determining what kind of spray you might want to do. So again, I kind of point you to the University of Connecticut, the Master Gardeners, they might be able to help you out um, if you can actually find out exact symptoms of what's happening and let them know. Uh, Chris is calling in from Rocky Point, New York. Chris, go ahead. Well, good morning. I have a question about uh, planting zinnia seeds, um, optimal temperature, any kind of uh, fertilizer. Okay, Chris. So if you're, if you're growing zinnias from seed, you probably want to start them indoors now. 
Um, it's a little too early to put them outside. Um, so I would say, you know, put them in some containers um, with some potting soil. If you can keep the soil really warm, one of the things I use a lot because I do start seeds uh, every year is I got what they call a heating mat. And this is a, a mat that you can put underneath the trays of your seedlings. You just plug it in. It automatically brings the temperature up to about 70 degrees, which is ideal for a lot of seeds to germinate. And what happens is that you'll get those seeds, seedlings to grow really fast. They'll germinate quickly and grow really fast and turn into nice big bushy plants so you can put them outside. So keeping the soil warm is probably more important than actually the air around them. My seed starting uh, place is down in the basement because that's where the best place is for it. It's cool down there, but because I have those seed starting mats, everything grows really well. Um, so I would suggest putting them in a place, if you don't want to invest in the mat, maybe putting them in a place where um, they get a little bottom heat from wherever they are so that they'll germinate really quickly. After about four weeks, then you can put them outside and they'll do fine. Uh, just because we're running out of time, uh, Charlie, I just wanted to paraphrase a question we're getting. Uh, someone wants to know, uh, when you're growing seedlings indoors, they're pretty small, what size should they be before you replant them outside? Ah, that's a good question. So they, they should be a, a good size. So for example, if you're growing tomatoes indoors, um, you know, they really ideally should be at least six, eight inches tall um, when you're going to be moving them outside. Um, if you're growing other plants that are a little bit smaller, like a basil, for example, uh, you probably could put them out when they're, they're a little bit smaller than that. Uh, you just have to protect them a little bit more. The smaller the plant, it's kind of like a children. You know, the younger the child, the more uh, sensitive they would be to the environment. The same thing with your plants. You know, the younger the plant is out there, you might have to protect protect them from wind and uh, bright sunshine uh, for a few days or weeks until they really get going uh, really well. But if you have a nice, good stocky plant like a tomato that's six, eight inches tall, you're doing really well. Uh, before we run out of time, I, I thought this is a good time of year to be planting new blueberry bushes, raspberry, blackberry bushes. Uh, what do you need to know? Let's start with raspberries, uh, Charlie, uh, before you plant them. How do you get that your soil and area of your yard ready? Yeah, raspberries are, are a great one to grow. Lots of different types of raspberries, the ever-blooming, ever-bearing raspberries, blackberries, all of those in that bramble family. If you can get a spot that has a full sun, you know, a good six to eight hours of sun a day, uh, mound up the soil, especially if you're growing on clay. Uh, they don't like a really wet soil all the time. So mound up that soil um, with a combination of compost, topsoil. Um, I love to put wood chips down. Um, I get a local arborist to dump wood chips in my yard when he's just in the, in the neighborhood. Um, and I use the wood chips mixed in with all those soils and the combination of the compost and wood chips are nice. You don't get a nitrogen deficiency problem. Um, and then plant in that raised area. Um, and plant them about a foot apart, keep them well watered that first year. And then after that, you're pretty golden. You know, keep them mulched. Every year I throw more wood chips or more organic materials into those beds. They like a real rich organic soil. Uh, so that's kind of the, the basic 101 on, on brambles. For blueberries, you want to do a similar kind of thing. They, they are a very shallow rooted plant, but they also need a low pH. So you're probably going to want to do a pH test and put down some sulfur so you can lower that pH down to around five or so. That's what they really like. And again, they like that organic matter. So mulch them every year. Good tips. I'm going to paraphrase another quick question. Uh, Ken was wondering, he has a seedless grape plant, used to make grapes, but no longer thinks it has a disease. Any non-chemical solutions for him? Well, it's, it's hard to know without seeing the plant and knowing exactly what's going on um, for it. But I would say if it's, if it's still growing okay, I would prune it back heavily. Um, really try to get it to rejuvenate. You might, might go back to the actual uh, main stump and leave some small little branches off of that. But the idea is that to remove a lot of that old growth that might have the disease on them, 
get that out of the area, go back and grapes, as you know, are, are really vigorous plants and you can cut them way back and they'll still reproduce and still cut. Uh, still grow. Um, you won't get grapes this year if you do that, but you will set up the structure for grapes for in years to come. This has been really fun, Charlie, and I actually wanted to spend some time talking about perennials, but we're out of time. We're just going to have to have you come back in the summer to talk about all your favorite uh, perennial flowers. Yes, we'll have to do that too. And I'd love to give a little plug to my a Vegetable Victory Garden webinar that is free on my website at gardeningwithcharlie.com. Uh, before we let you go, uh, are there some particular plants that people uh, should be looking out for when they do uh, venture out to their local garden center? As we mentioned earlier in the show, a lot of these garden centers are practicing social distancing, having pickups versus wandering around. Uh, any tips? Uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, a lot of these garden centers are really pivoted pretty quickly into putting a lot of things online. So go online, see if they have an actual online store so you can actually look at some of the plants that they have, the selection that they have. Um, and do a little research, you know, go, go on, Google those plants, find out if it's the right plant for the right place in your yard, the right sun, the right soil, the right size. That's always a big one. You know, people see these little plants and never dream of them getting big, but they do get really big. Uh, so make sure you get the right plant for the right place. And then you can always talk to the folks at the garden centers on the phone to confirm that and get the good order of a nice plant. And uh, before we go too, uh, we think about the last frost that should be coming up pretty soon, Charlie. Uh, well, yes, depending on where you are. It could be anywhere from the um, next week uh, along the Sound, um, up in, if you're up in the hills, kind of towards where you are, Lucy, it could be <laughs> mid-May or so. Um, but just because it's an average annual last frost doesn't mean we won't have some aberrations, meaning that we might um, get a frost around Memorial Day as has happened in different times. So always be on your guard for the next month or so for frost. Um, but if you're just watching the weather in the evening, if you can just throw a, a blanket or move some containers closer to the house, that might be enough to save them. Again, that's really important as we, again, are getting really eager to start planting and transplanting, but we don't want those uh, uh, to become victims of that frost. So uh, it's a good thing for you to make sure that uh, and remind us that, that there's a way to protect those plants. Charlie Nardozzi, again, is host of the Connecticut Garden Journal on Connecticut Public Radio. He's a horticulturist up in Vermont. Uh, we do appreciate having you on today, Charlie. We'll be sure to share your webinar with our listeners. Have a great weekend, Charlie. You too, Lucy. Take care. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Uh, again, Carmen Baskoff was on the phone screening the calls. Thank you so much for calling in today. Sorry we ran out of time to take more calls. Also, thanks to our technical producer, Cat Pastor. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.